This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. August 28, 1963. The day was hot. The air was humid. It is booked like a mighty stream. Patrick Henry Bass described the day as one of the hottest of the marchers' lives. Nevertheless, 250,000 people gathered on our nation's mall in Washington, D.C. to hear a young, 39-year-old, eloquent, and charismatic Baptist minister from Atlanta, Georgia, stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and deliver perhaps one of the most defining speeches in American history. From the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on that hot and humid August day, these words echoed across the mall and into our nation's collective conscience. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its dream. Out of creed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering in the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. No one would deny that the tone of Dr. King's speech was that of optimism and hope. Refusing to believe the bank of justice is bankrupt, Dr. King envisioned a nation that stood on the solid rock of brotherhood, a nation where, as he said, the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence to which every American was to fall heir, a nation that still retained great vaults of opportunity, and where the destiny of white and black people is tied together, and where the freedom both is inextricably bound. What Dr. King so eloquently articulated from those steps on, in Washington, D.C., was a vision of what America was meant to be, a nation that had declared its independence from Britain so that it could acknowledge for its citizens the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A nation that, though ripped apart by civil war, found it could indeed form a more perfect union and secure the blessings of liberty by, to ourselves and our posterity. One nation under God, whose government of the people, by the people, for the people, would not waver from the self-evident truth that all men are created equal. Now, I'm not going to stand before you this evening and endeavor to paint a false picture I'm not interested in continuing a false narrative that starts with the Emancipation Proclamation, a narrative that claims the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and the ruling of Brown versus Board of Education, the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that these acts were the conclusion of almost 200 years of racial struggle in our nation. To say that the civil rights legislation of the 60s punctuated the end of racial discrimination is to misunderstand both American history and the human condition. But I will not stand here this evening and deny that all those landmark executive, judicial, and legislative acts were not integral to our nation's development. In fact, each national step towards equality under the law, regardless of the color of one's skin, was only possible because this nation was, indeed, founded on biblical principles. So it should be of no surprise that our nation has often vectored towards the truths of God's word in its legislation. Though it took more than 200 years from the founding of this great nation to finally see what the word of God so plainly revealed to us through James, who told us that if you love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. Though it took 200 years for our nation to establish these biblical truths in the canon of our laws, we did not cease in our national effort to correct some blatant national flaws. 
Though it took more than 200 years, we can agree with Dr. King who said in his final speech, the day before an assassin's bullet took his life in Memphis, Tennessee, he said, I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men, in some strange way, are responding. Something is happening in our world. No, it was not perfect. And no, it did not answer all of our nation's ills. But the way in which we grappled with racial discrimination in the 60s and into the 1970s was pivotal, pivotal for improving our national heritage. And though we still have a great way to go, we're not where we once were. So why is it that in 2021, it seems that race, racism, and racial discrimination has been thrust back into our national conversation? Are we still a racist nation? Have we accomplished so little in the almost 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech? Perhaps we have simply masked our deeply embedded racism into other forms. Do we have a deeply rooted systemic problem? Is it no longer the actual color of skin that drives racial inequality, but rather it is the social constructs that have been thrust upon us by systems and grand narratives. Tonight, we're going to consider the answer to those questions. Now, perhaps you have never heard those questions, or maybe you've never asked them, or maybe they've never been asked of you. Nevertheless, the principles behind these questions are influencing our culture. They are the catalyst behind the influx of colloquial terms such as wokeism, white fragility, anti-racism, intersectionality, whiteness, black power, white supremacy, privilege, and power. They're the foundational foundation for how and what type of history is being taught to the next generation in our schools. Last week, we spoke of critical theory. But tonight, we're going to add to last week and venture into a relatively new discipline called critical race theory. Honestly, we could take critical theory and expand into any number of social justice issues. Climate justice, feminism, queer studies, just to name a few. And each deserves to be considered with a full theological accounting. But for tonight, I'll endeavor to introduce just one. That's critical race theory. And we'll measure critical race theory, which I'll often abbreviate as CRT. And we'll measure CRT against what the scriptures have to say to determine its veracity. Now, I don't mean to be an alarmist, but I calculate that our society is in one of the most racially sensitive times in our history, at least since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. If the Lord does not return soon, how we address the racial upheaval we are experiencing today will have tremendous influence on our children and on our children's children. So let's begin. When we concluded last week, we had described the unholy union between Marxism and postmodernism that engendered critical theory. You'll recall that critical theory was really nothing more than a rebranding of Marxism, where in the place of class, the critical theorist posited the oppressed. And in the place of objective revolution, the theorist positive subjective idealism. Fortunately, this neo-Marxist philosophy remained fairly sequestered in the relatively uninfluential halls of academia. The average American was not concerned with philosophy or theory, so the discipline rarely, if ever, emerged long enough to face the rigorous scrutiny against American capitalism and ingenuity. This was the case until the 1970s, when the theory shook off its academic shackles and emerged in a discipline that promised a more widespread influence on our culture. That discipline, legal studies. In the mid-1970s, many intellectuals perceived that the civil rights movement of the 1960s had ended, and that, in fact, many of the gains of the civil rights movement had been turned back. That is, laws such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had failed to bring about wholesale reform to America jurisprudence. So while discrimination based on skin color was now technically illegal, Many legal scholars believe the legal system still allowed, even protected, a certain amount of racism. And it was not hard to point out some very tangible statistics that demonstrated some apparently systemic issues. 
For example, in 1980, there were some 500,000 people in our prison system. Roughly 40% of them were black. By two, the year 2000, the number of those incarcerated in America had increased to 2 million inmates, with about 50% being black. In just two decades, the number of those incarcerated had grown by 400%. And one of the reasons for this, though this is not the only reason, but one of the reasons was the war on drugs instituted in the 1970s. See, in an effort to combat the illegal drug trade in the United States, President Nixon declared drugs as public enemy number one. But with the war on drugs came some incredible draconian measures like mandatory sentencing and the three strikes you're out policy. And the statistics showed that these draconian measures significantly impacted the black population in America. But why was this? What was the root of it? Now we could give the simple answer, a very simplistic answer, that it was because, well, black people were breaking the law at a higher rate than white people or Hispanic people or Asian people. The majority of drug dealers were black, so logically, they would have the highest number of offenders in the system. And this answer would be correct, at least partially. But that answer really is too simplistic. Let's quickly look at the drug problem in America, specifically in the use of crack cocaine. A recent study found that when it comes to the sale of crack cocaine, 83% of the offenders are black. However, the same study showed that young white people are nine times more likely to use crack cocaine than black people. So who are the users? White people. Who are the sellers? Black people. The difference was in the treatment of users and sellers. White people would go to rehab while black people would go to jail. So for at least the drug problem in America, the majority of users are hedonistic, consumeristic, wealthy, spoiled white kids who just want to get high. But instead of confronting our hedonistic immorality, our nation chose rather to balance our cultural budget on the backs of the poor who found they could make some money in this $100 billion a year commerce of illicit drug trafficking. Now, lest you think I'm excusing drug dealers as those who are just trying to make a buck, just trying to make, eke out a living and feed their family, I assure you I'm not. I'm not going to give them such a benefit. I wholeheartedly agree that if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. But it's very easy to say that. But there remains the tremendous reality that our nation only militantly pursued one side of the illicit drug trade, the sellers. Meanwhile, the users were coddled as addicts, as the victims of a disease. And what's the result we have today? Because this was never adequately addressed, an opioid epidemic, where crack cocaine has been replaced by the easier to obtain Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin, and it remains still young white kids who are addicted. White kids are the, still the majority of the users. So in spite of the massive increase in drug sentencing, our nation's drug problem has not abated. And the number of incarcerated people continues to rise. It's a phenomenon exactly like the war on drugs that legal scholars in the 1970s were trying to make sense of. So these legal scholars did what all critical theorists do and employed Marxist and postmodern principles to the problem. The result was the emergence of a new legal scholarship appropriately called critical legal studies. Critical legal studies was the first movement in legal theory and legal scholarship in the United States to espouse a committed leftist agenda. It was committed to shaping society based on vision of human personality devoid of the hidden interest in class domination that scholars argued was the root of legal institutions in the West. In other words, the legal system was the oppressor and the people were the oppressed. Thus, the system needed to be revolutionized in true Marxist fashion in order to liberate the oppressed and create a more humane, egalitarian, and democratic society. Thus, the first wave of American critical legal scholars entered legal education, having been profoundly influenced in the 70s by their experiences in the civil rights movement, women's rights movement, and the anti-war movements of the 1960s and 70s. 
One of the critical legal scholars was a Harvard Law professor and activist named Derrick Bell. Derrick Bell determined to push critical legal studies further. During the 1970s, Bell, the first tenured African-American professor of law at Harvard Law School, began studying and writing about the effects of desegregation. He noted that desegregation did not undo the injustices set by segregation in the first place, but instead created a whole set of new problems for black students attending predominantly white schools. Bell viewed the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 as a great disappointment as it produced detrimental repercussions for black students who remain to be seen as inferior to white students. Here's what Bell said about education. Beyond the ebb and flow of racial progress lies the still viable and widely accepted, though seldom expressed, belief that America is a white country in which blacks, particularly as a group, are not entitled to the concern, resources, or even empathy that would be extended to similarly situated whites. Because of this lack of concern, resources, and empathy, Bell concluded that the focus for American education system should not be on national integration, but rather they should be on improving the quality of education provided for black students. Bell was not advocating simply for equality. He wanted equity. It was Bell's scholarship that took critical legal studies and introduced a new framework he began to call critical race theory. Derrick Bell was not alone in his scholarship and was not the only proponent of critical race theory. But we don't have time to assess all the contributors. But there's one that if we are really going to grasp critical race theory, we need to mention her. Her name was Kimberly Crenshaw. Crenshaw was a student of Derrick Bell at Harvard Law School. In the early 1980s, black students at Harvard Law organized protests regarding Harvard's lack of racial diversity in their curriculum among the students and in the faculty. These students supported Derrick Bell, who had left Harvard Law in 1980, to become the dean at the University of Oregon Law School. Bell had developed new courses that studied American law through the lens of crucial race theory, and when he left, the Harvard students wanted black faculty to teach those classes. But the university responded that they could not find sufficiently qualified black instructors. So in response, Crenshaw, along with other students, boycotted and organized to develop an alternative course using Bell's Race, Races, and American Law book as their core text. By 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw was able to organize a formal workshop called New Developments in Critical Race Theory. In an effort to connect the theor theoretical underpinnings of critical legal studies to the day-to-day -day realities of American racial politics, this formal meeting effectively became the birth of this new field we now know as critical race theory. Crenshaw said in those early days, she said that there were no new developments in critical race theory because CRT hadn't had any old ones. It didn't exist. It was, a made, up, it was made up as a name. Sometimes you just got to fake it until you make it. She said that critical race theorists had, quote, discovered ourselves to be critical theorists who did race and racial justice advocates who did critical theory, unquote. So from the very beginning, you could see that critical theory and critical race theory were inextricably linked. Crenshaw went on to say that one might say that CRT was the offspring of a post-civil rights institutional activism that was generated and informed by an opposition, oppositionalist orientation towards racial power. So that's the history of critical race theory and how it emerged from critical legal studies, which emerged from critical theory which emerged from Marxism and postmodernism. Yes, there is a direct linkage from critical race theory to Marxism. And now if that is not concern enough, let's go deeper this evening into critical race theory and see what it is and what it has become. And then we can ask ourselves, should we be wary of this? Now I think a certain amount of caution is in order. Many of you may be concerned, and rightfully so, that to discard critical race theory simply because of its Marxist or origins may have the unintended consequence of condoning racism. After all, doesn't CRT endeavor to get to the root of racism in our society? This is a viable concern. But let me be clear, racism in any form, whether systemic or personal, overt or covert, explicit or implicit, is a sin and must be dealt with 
No Christian, especially a Christian, can at the same time, out of the same mouth, bless and curse. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? If we bless God and curse men, which are made after the similitude of God, we have wisdom that descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Racism will stunt the spiritual growth of any believer. It is a sin. But the problem with critical race theory is that it is deceiving. Allow me to illustrate it like this. Imagine a train, and on that train is a boxcar, and that we will call that boxcar critical race theory or critical theory. The reality is, though, the engine that drives that train, that gives that critical race theory boxcar its momentum, is critical theory. Furthermore, critical race theory is not alone on the track. It's not the only boxcar. For through the same framework that critical race theory was developed comes the other boxcars of LGBTQ+, feminist theory, ableist theory, child studies, transgenderism. We cannot simply pick and choose the boxcars we agree with. The engine driving the entire train of social justice is built on unbiblical principles. And do you remember what those principles are from last week? I had provided three. Critical theory denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Critical theory denies a biblical construct of humanity. And critical theory denies the sovereignty of God. And we will see now how these three denials have manifested themselves in critical race theory. I mentioned a few minutes ago that Kimberly Crenshaw indicated that critical race theory was the work of critical theorists who were racial justice advocates. We need to explore the word justice for a moment. If we could bundle all the critical theories today under a single heading, it would be a familiar title to you. That heading would be social justice. Social justice is quite in vogue today, so we need to define that term. First, justice as a concept is very important. It should be very important to us as believers. It is important to us precisely because it is important to God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is concerned with justice, even commanding his people in Deuteronomy to pursue justice so that they may live and inherit the land. We are concerned with justice because God is concerned with justice. I can think of no better instruction on this than in the Old Testament book of Micah. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet records a fascinating conversation between God and his people in the northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah. Consider how Pastor Brown describes the setting for this conversation. You may recall from a series of messages on the minor prophets, a series titled The Portraits of God, Pastor Brown pointed out that although the prophecies concerned by Judah and Israel, the main audience was this kingdom of Judah. And here's what he said about the cultural climate. This was a key time in Judah's history. God warned both Israel and Judah about his coming judgment, and the response to his warnings had an impact on the future of their nations. The people of Israel remained steadfast in their wickedness. Following the lead of a long line of wicked kings, Judah's people wavered between following God and ignoring him taking their cues from a hodgepodge of good and bad kings. There is a great similarity between the kingdom of Judah and Israel and the state of affairs in our nation. We too remain steadfast in our wickedness. Perhaps in our brief history as a nation, we have wavered at times between following God and certainly we have ignored him. But rarely have we seen any sort of wholesale national repentance and national healing. So when we get to Micah chapter 6, it's not difficult for us to place ourselves into this conversation. Let me begin with chapter 6, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? 
the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In the Old Testament, there are two words for justice. The first is a word that we see often translated as righteousness, and it defines the justice of God as an act. God is righteous. He is just. The second is the word we see here in Micah 6.8, which means to be or to make right in a moral sense. So in Micah 6.8, we are told what God expects of us. We are to perform acts of justice. Or like Isaiah 1.17 says, we are to learn to do well, to seek judgment. That's the word for justice. To relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. And this is not just an Old Testament instruction to the nation of Israel. In James 1.27, we find that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, when we look into the scriptures, we can see that Jesus also had a deep concern for those who were oppressed. He came to heal those oppressed with disease. He ate with publicans and sinners. So in their there is a scriptural way of looking at the value and ministry and love for the marginalized. And isn't it this what critical race theory does? Does not it come to the aid of the oppressed? Doesn't it seek justice for just like we are commanded to do in Micah 6, 8, in Isaiah 1, 17, in James 1, 27? But what is it about critical race theory's approach to the marginalized that's different? Because you'll often hear People who will support critical race theory say, well, Jesus is all about the marginalized. Unfortunately, many well-meaning Christians get wrapped up in CRT because it does seek to affirm the dignity, value, and worth of humans. We are created in God's image, and we have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. And if we are going to affirm the dignity, value, and worth of individuals, how do we look at some of the plight of certain individuals, and how do we right those wrongs? How do we speak justice into an unjust situation? How do we speak up on behalf of the marginalized or the oppressed or the poor? Well, there's a difference between the biblical approach to justice and the approach of critical race theory. That justice comes in the definition of the term justice. And to help us understand this definition of justice, we need to go no further than the dictionary. The dictionary defines social justice as a term in this way. Social justice is the terms of the redistribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. In other words, it's redistributive justice. And let me warn you, redistributive justice is not biblical. To see this, we need to consider a little more in depth of what CRT actually teaches in regards to justice. Now, it is very difficult to give a concise definition of critical race theory. This is because for as many theoreticians promoting CRT, there are that many different nuanced applications. But I like Monique Dusan's description of CRT. Monique Dusan is the founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. After spending two decades in social work advocating for CRT, Through a series of events, she began to see the contradictions of CRT within the Christian worldview. And she is now convinced that CRT is not a good way to achieve racial unity, and she actively speaks out against the use of CRT within the church. Dusan describes CRT as the approach to, and this is what she says, to look into society at who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors based on race. It answers the question, How is one group of people being oppressed, and how is another group of people oppressing them? All from the lens, through the lens of race. It is a critical look at society based on the lens of race. Thus, CRT really only has two focal points. The first is to understand how white supremacy has been created and maintained in the United States. And the second is to not just be interested in understanding this and the functions of racism, but to change these injustices. In other words, CRT seeks to pinpoint white supremacy in our institutions, government, education, even our churches, and eradicate these injustices by redistributing the wealth, 
power, and privilege of those in these institutions. Now, it is important to define that term, white supremacy. Historically, white supremacy was used to be understood as an overt racism, such as someone who wore a white cloak and was part of the KKK, or someone who would call others derogatory terms based on their skin color. It was truly thinking your race was superior to the others based solely on skin color. But CRT has redefined the term white supremacy to mean racism as prejudice plus power. So if you have racial prejudice, it is because you also have a place of power within society that allows you to exert that prejudice. So if you were to look at who holds power within society, it would be white men or whites in general have a higher power than people of color. This means that it is not enough for you to simply treat everyone equally with dignity and respect. If you are in the place of power, you are inherently racist. You are racist because of the color of your skin and class and not because of your behavior. So while this is difficult to get a coherent, airtight definition of CRT simply because no single definition exists, Though many scholars, they do agree on the centrality of seven tenets within the theory. So let me give them to you quickly. Tenet one is that racism is a normal part of American life. Tenet two is that racial advantage propels the self-interest, power, and privileges of the dominant group. Tenet three is the giving of voice to the lived experiences of people of color Tenet four recognizes interest convergence. This is the process whereby the white power structure will tolerate and encourage racial advances for blacks only when they promote white self-interest. In other words, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as an example, was nothing more than a pragmatic ploy by white people. Tenet five, revisionist history suggests that American history be closely scrutinized and reinterpreted as opposed to being accepted at face value and truth. Tenet six teaches that racism is a means by which society allocates privilege and status. And tenet seven repudiates the claims that colorblindness will eliminate racism. Racism is a matter of individuals, not systems. And it repudiates the thoughts that one can fight racism without paying attention to sexism, homophobia, economic exploitation, and other forms of oppression or injustice. Do you see the boxcar analogy at play here? You cannot fight racism, according to CRT, without also paying attention to and advocating for sins such as homosexuality. A few weeks ago, Pastor sent an email that contained a link to a transcript of a part of a lecture by Christopher Rufo, the founder and director of Battlefront, a public policy research center. Sam Warren had located the lecture, and I appreciate him doing so. The lecture had been delivered at Hillsdale College on March 30th of this year. In that lecture, Rufo said that there are three parts to a successful strategy to defeat the forces of CRT. He said there's governmental action, grassroots mobilization, and an appeal to principle. He went on to say that in terms of principles, we need to employ our own moral language rather than allow ourselves to be confined by the categories of critical race theory, these tenets. Now, I certainly agree with Rufo. He's not wrong, but I think we need to add a fourth part. As Christians, we are obligated to add the fourth strategy of measuring CRT to the Word of God. And this is where we are failing, because it requires rigor and study of God's Word. And this, often it is easier to take the path such as proposed by ethicist professor of a well-known Christian college who said an endorsement or a rejection of CRT requires examining a lot of U.S. history, especially U.S. legal history, political philosophy, sociology, and theology. But I fundamentally disagree with that because the challenge before the church today is not answering a historical question. How do we approach ideology as volatile as critical race theory? I think what we have before us are really only two options. We can approach it histori historically, or we can approach it theologically. If we approach CRT theory and analyze it for its historicity, we will immediately run into an impasse. 
This is the problem with simply debating treatments like Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project as a legitimate interpretation of history. Now, if you're not familiar with the 1619 Project, it is a series of essays organized by the New York Times, of which the lead essay was written by an activist named Nicole Hannah-Jones. The 1619 Project endeavors to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. It literally backdated the founding of our nation, not to when we declared independence in 1776, but to 1619 when a Dutch-operated privateer, the White Lion, carried 20 to 30 Africans and landed at Point Comfort in the English colony of Virginia. There's been enough criticism of the historical liberties and ignorances taken by the project. We'll not really get it, relitigate those criticisms. It wouldn't be helpful anyway. This is because the 1619 Project utilizes critical theories from postmodern interpretation of history. It deconstructs history with abandon and reconstructs it, reconstructs it using live, lived experience as the standard. Here's the problem with that. I was not alive in 1619, and neither were you. While we can certainly read history and draw our own conclusions, we cannot dogmatically say anything about history. You weren't there. We only rely on what we have been told. But the 1619 Project is determined to paint our history so darkly because it serves the purpose of reinforcing the oppressed narrative, whether that narrative was true or not. But for the sake of argument, let's say the 1619 Project is historically accurate. Let's say the nation was founded in 1619 when slaves first came to our shores. Let's say that our entire economic structure as a nation was built on slavery and that for 400 years we have developed a brutal, white supremacist, capitalistic society that advocates a false narrative of American exceptionalism. Let's say that. My issue then is not the historical conclusions made by the project, though I do disagree with them. My issue is with the process used to arrive at the conclusions and more importantly, the implications of those conclusions. But let's take and fold the 1619 Project back into CRT. No one questions that it is a product of CRT. So for my point here, let's fold it back into CRT and look at CRT as a whole. If interpretation of CRT is relative, then I'm in, I am free to interpret CRT any way I choose. You cannot tell me I am wrong because my perspective is authoritative. Therefore, if I come to a wrong conclusion, an errant conclusion, maybe even a heretical conclusion, then by a postmodern standard, even that wrong, errant, heretical conclusion is valid precisely because it is my truth. I own it. My point is this. If an interpretation of any system of thought can land you outside the bounds of Scripture, but that interpretation is still given merit, maybe even celebrated, then should the entire system that allows for such a conclusion be suspect for its validity? Take the interpretation of Scripture as an example of a counterpoint. We do not have any such luxury to interpret Scripture using a postmodern subjective perspective. The Scriptures say that they, what they say, and there is no private interpretation. And this is what takes us squarely back into the second option that we have when dealing with CRT. And that is we have to have a theological approach to it. If there is a disagreement with Scripture, CRT allows for such a private interpretation to be valid. This is heresy. I do not determine what is true or false. The Bible has already revealed to us the mind of God. But CRT, just like its predecessor critical theory, denies the sufficiency of Scripture. But tonight, we shall not deny the teaching of this book that is our sole guide for faith and practice. But let me share very quickly, four areas where CRT is theologically in opposition to Scripture, and you can measure it for yourself. First, CRP replaces, at worst, or confuses, at best, the true gospel of permanent redemption and replaces it with a gospel of temporary deliverance. The Bible teaches us that all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Furthermore, we know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When, converse, when con conversion takes place, a redemptive work is manifested in our lives. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Unfortunately, according to CRT, if you are white, 
You are de facto a member of the oppressor system, and you therefore perpetually live in sin. There is no redemption for you. You sin because you have to. This is counter to the sufficient work of Christ on the cross. If I am a racist because of the color of my skin, then is the work of Christ on the cross to none effect? To what purpose did he die if it were not to die for my sins only, but for the sins of the entire world? What is it then, according to CRT, can a white person be redeemed? Can he be fully redeemed, permanently redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Or must he continue to seek temporal deliverance each day for the sins of his father? Which brings me to point two. Not only does CRT replace, at worst or confuse at best, the true gospel of permanent redemption with the gospel of temporary deliverance, but CRT errs in that it holds individuals accountable for the sins of their fathers. Ezekiel 8.20 addresses this. It enlightens us to the responsibilities individuals have for their sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. I'm not held accountable for the sins of my father. My children, though they may reap the consequences of my sins and choices and decisions, will not be judged for my sins. To teach that white people must pay reparations for the crimes of their forefathers is to pervert the justice of God. So CRT replaces and confuses the true gospel of permanent redemption with the gospel of temporary deliverance. It errs in that it holds individuals accountable for the sins of their fathers. But thirdly, CRT quenches the Holy Spirit as the convicting agent for sin. It does this by emphasizing the idea that racism is about institutional power and not individual actions. In the book, Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education, Robin DiAngelo and co-author Oslam Sensoy blatantly deny the individual component of sin. The authors say this, and I quote, racism occurs at the group level and is only perpetuated by the group that holds social, ideological, economic, and institutional power. Again, two other authors, authors Stephanie Wildman and Adrian David, write, all whites are racist in the systemic use of the term because we benefit from systemic white privilege. Unless we think this is just in secular society, consider the tweet by a Christian professor who has 20,000 plus Twitter followers who teaches at a prominent Christian college. He says this, black people in America have relied on God's word to help them survive white people. When you're white and in the dominant culture, you've never needed the Old Testament covenant keeping redemptive God. These sentiments deny the power of God to the believer. The power of God to transform his children into the image of his son. How can we be transformed if we don't need, indeed, if we don't even know the redemptive God? A byproduct of this view that racism is institutional or systemic is to bypass the fact that Christians should primarily view racism as a sin. Certainly, structures and systems can encourage and promote sin. Our nation condoned slavery for more than 100 years, but the government did not commit sin. Human beings committed sin. The Roman Empire did not crucify Jesus. Our sins nailed him there. We are culpable for our sins. So while we can recognize the enabling of sin that is brought about by laws and institutions, such as Chattel slavery or Jim Crow laws, institution and laws that can be incredibly unjust, institution and laws that need to be abolished, we cannot forget that it is human beings who are the perpetrators. It is human beings, regardless of skin color, who will stand guilty before God and give an account of their words, their thoughts, and their deeds. But also a focus on structures leads many critical race theories to insist that people of color cannot be racist by definition. They are immune to this sin. Again, this is an understanding of racism that conflicts with a biblical understanding of racism as a sin. Just as we wouldn't define the word adultery to apply only to a man, we should not define racism to apply only to whites or only to blacks. We are all capable of per perpetrating the wicked pride of our heart. Institutions and systems do not convict us of our sins. The Holy Spirit does. But finally, CRT divides Christian brothers and sisters. It is not unifying. 
So while CRT replaces or confuses the true gospel of permanent redemption with the gospel of temporary deliverance, and CRT errs in that it holds individuals accountable for the sins of their fathers, and CRT quenches the Holy Spirit as the convicting agent for sin, the fourth thing is it brings division. Paul warned the church at Rome to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that they had learned. Why? Because these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Consider a few tweets from, with, from within an admittedly wide Christian circle, but still within evangelicalism. Here's an evangelical pastor with 9,000-plus Twitter followers, and he tweeted this. The person who has the exegetical advantage over all when it comes to understanding the scriptures is not the trained theologian. It's the poor, socially powerless person on the margins for whom many of the narratives of scripture serve as a mirror to reality. And this is one from a graduate of a conservative evangelical seminary who has contributed to several conservative evangelical websites. He tweeted, the Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives or else you cannot understand the word of God. And again, another tweet. If the references in your pastor's sermons, the books used in your small groups, the resources passed between the laity, the music sung in worship, and even the reflection quotes in your worship bulletins are predominantly by white men, your church is promoting a truncated Christianity. Can you see the division that, it, that occurs when we make claims that only certain people can properly interpret scripture. And it is not those who have studied to show themselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. No, it is those who are socially powerless and on the margins. It is those who are historically marginalized. Only their perspective counts. God failed you if you have not been oppressed. Your Christianity is truncated. It is incomplete. But CRT has carved inroads into our churches Introducing to us a new canon of books like White Fragility or How to Be an Anti-Racist. But the worldview espoused in these books wants to separate us, not unite us. As Christians, we are brothers and sisters. There must be no division among those who are in Christ. For there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If we are in Christ, then we should be moving forward together as brothers and sisters, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ there is no white or black or brown, for we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, for he hath made of one blood all nations for to, to dwell on the land on the face of the earth. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. When I consider how critical race theory is making an entrance into our churches and into our conversation and into our Christian colleges and universities, we are shaming each other because of the color of their skin we, when instead we should ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about Christians keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? What does the Bible say about you being my brother or you being my sister? What does it say about us being one body in Christ and everyone members one of another? Let the broader culture endeavor to cancel individuals who aren't doing the work of anti-racism correctly, but we cannot let this false teaching into our churches. We cannot teach works plus salvation. We cannot advocate for a legalistic gospel of sanctification that adds anything to the grace of God. We must not put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers were, nor us were able to bear. Let us put our hand to the plow and look forward, never looking back. So while CRT replaces or confuses the true gospel of permanent redemption with the gospel of temporary deliverance, and it errs in that it holds individuals accountable for the sins of their fathers. And it quenches the Holy Spirit as the convicting agent for sin. CRT must stay out of our churches because it, by design, only brings division. Now I know that what I have said this evening is hard. Some of you may be even sitting in your seats thinking, how can that guy up there have any credibility to talk about racism? The color of my skin simply negates any credibility I might pretend to have. After all, 
I've never experienced racism. No, I haven't. But I can say on the authority of scriptures that racism is a sin. I don't need to have experienced racism to know that a man should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Still, there may be others here who may look at something like CRT and with a bit of pride themselves say, of course that's wrong. I would never buy into that. But CRT is correct to note that we do not live in a colorblind or post-racial society, that racial disparities are still enormous, and racism is still a very real problem. I know that what I have said this evening has been rather controversial and just as aware that our body has those in it from all different cultures, backgrounds, and ethnicities. We truly are, out of many, one body. But even though what I have said may have some controversy, if you would notice, I didn't call names. I did mention by name those who left no doubt as to the role they have played in the development of critical race theory. But I didn't name drop anybody or any institution within our circles or within close proximity to our evangelical circles that espouse critical race theory. But there are those that are. This is by design. Such a topic like this, it can be divisive, controversial. And if we are not careful, we can offend for the sake of being offensive. But this evening, you know, I've cho purposely chosen to preach from a manuscript so that my words are carefully chosen. More importantly, I choose to lead, let the scriptures speak plainly. And I pray that I've allowed that to happen. I sincerely do believe that we are at a critical time in our nation's history. The rift of racial tensions is deepening. But let's not let it into the church. For after all these things to the Gentiles seek, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let us stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But I have confidence in you through the Lord, that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you, troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you help us to be a church that is unified? There is a lot of chaos and turmoil outside of these walls. Father, there are times when even in our humanity, we bring some of that chaos inside the walls. But Father, it is my prayer that we would keep our focus on you, that, Father, we would, as a church, reach out to the marginalized and the oppressed. But may we reach out to them with the life-changing gospel. And, Father, I pray that in everything we do, we would not elevate or disparage each other, but in everything we do, you would have the preeminence. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.